0: Take your Bibles and turn, beginning in Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. And this will be something of our takeoff point this morning. We're going to be looking at a variety of portions of Scripture, and again, I've notated the main passages. In the insert of your bulletin, there will be a few more added along. And if you have a pen or pencil, you can jot some of these down. And as we go, have these references for further study. As we come to this time of year, and we have so much around us that reminds us of the holiday and of the Christmas season, we find that Christmas is in fact falling prey to a variety of a variety of on a variety of fronts. It's falling. Pray to the commercialism, and of course, that's the most clearly seen. Is once Thanksgiving is gone, the stores are open, and come and buy what you can. Come and buy if you can't, and we will give you credit for it. But come and buy so that so that commercialism will go on. It's fallen also prey to pluralism because of the society in which we live. We have a variety of. Of world religions that are becoming more and more dominant within our society, and because of that, it's not politically correct to wish someone Merry Christmas anymore. The best you can do is to say Happy Holidays and try not to be offensive to anyone. Then we also find that it's falling prey to secularism as a whole. Let's remove anything of any divine significance of the idea of Christmas. And if you want to say anything about Jesus, don't say anything about Jesus being God. That is not acceptable either. So we have the attacks from commercialism, of pluralism, and of secularism coming upon us in this Christmas season. Now, as I say that, I'm not greatly alarmed when there are those who say that that Christians should not... Celebrate Christmas. We're not, we're under no biblical compulsion to do so. I think we are free to do so. And so we observe Christmas within our family and celebrate Christmas, and you're quite free to do so. However, we're not under any biblical mandate to celebrate Christmas as it is celebrated and as it is observed in our society today. And especially that becomes, becomes uh, more and more less Christian. You get beyond the church walls, and we find that there is an increasing vague understanding of Jesus coming at all. It's certainly becoming minimized as we, as we approach the holiday season, but there is among the world, outside the church walls, and in fact, even among God's people, an increasingly vague understanding of what Jesus' first coming was all about. So if we want to have a clear understanding of why Jesus came, what was his purpose, the safest place for us to to go is to Christ himself. Let's hear what he says. What does Jesus have to say about his purpose and his coming? And actually find that Jesus explains and he clarifies his purpose for coming in a series of statements throughout the Gospels. And we're going to be looking at those statements this morning. But also to keep in mind that because Jesus has done this, because He has explained, He has clarified His purpose, it does two things. First of all, it removes the issue from the realm of uncertainty. If there are questions to be asked, we can safely assume Jesus answers those questions. So it removes the uncertainty about why Jesus has come. The questions are answered by Christ if you want to know them. But it also does something else. Because Jesus has explained and He has clarified His purpose in coming, it also restricts interpretation. It restricts the interpretation that one is to place upon the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it is not open to a sentimental, feel-good interpretation. Looking at the first coming of Jesus Christ is not open to what it means to me. Jesus has very clearly said, This is why I came and we are not free to go beyond those statements and to add anything to it we are to to understand that as what is coming is clarified by his statements and so again it restricts us in our interpretation and it's a good restriction so we're free there's freedom in restriction and knowing, well, this is why He's come, this is what he said, so let's make sure we understand that by, by His explaining and clarifying His purpose, it removes questions, but it also restricts our interpretation to what He says, not what I think I want it to say, what I think I want it to mean. So our goal this morning is to examine and to consider, to rejoice in, and to declare Jesus' stated purposes in His first coming. Beginning with reading Isaiah chapter 61, and we're going from here to Luke's gospel. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, and the first part of verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And now turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Again, reading with me in verse 16. Speaking here of Jesus, He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. And He opened the book and found the place where it was written, which we just read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. One of the interesting features of the many times that Jesus gives us a purpose statement, where he gives an explanation of what he has come to do, many times those statements will begin with the negative. In other words, he doesn't begin saying, I've come for this. He begins, he begins on many occasions saying, I did not or I have not come to do such and such. But then he counters what he has said at the first part and he goes explaining why he has come. Which I think is an implication of, first of all, the need for Jesus Christ to clarify his purpose. He needs to clarify it. It needs to be clarified for us, lest we misinterpret. And obviously, part of the difficulty of his day was there was a lot of misinterpretation. We know that when Christ comes, he's coming to do this. Or they would see Jesus doing something, Well, you've come to do this. And Jesus would say many times, I've not come for this. Rather, in contrast, I have come for this. And we see in this the human tendency to misinterpret why Jesus, why Christ would come to earth. So it's a challenge that was present, but not unique to Jesus' days of ministry. Of people misinterpreting, misunderstanding why the Christ would come, why He would come. So because He does define these purposes for us, Our responsibility as the people of God is that we declare the purposes that are consistent with that which Jesus has said. So again, let's focus here on the words of Jesus' purposes. Jesus' purpose in His own words. Jesus' reason for the season. First of all, we see that He was one who was sent. We read that already here in our text as he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61. He says in what's recorded here in Luke chapter 4 verse 18, he says, Because He anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor, He has sent me. He has sent me. He is one who has been sent. So if I were to ask, what is the origin? Where does the initiative for Jesus coming where does it come from? Was Jesus merely a self advancing, progressive, activist, revolutionary who was ahead of his times? There are some who aren't painting that way. Was he merely a man? Was there more than that? Well, let's notice a few statements of Jesus. First of all, look in John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 25. Our thrust is verses 28 and 29. Now, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and teaching saying, You both know and know where I am from, and I have not come of Myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So the summation here is, I have not come of myself, he sent me. That's his first purpose statement. I've not come myself, I am one who has been sent. He's responding to the comment here in verse 27. We know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where He is from. Evidently, there was the popular notion that that when the Messiah appeared, He would just kind of appear and nobody knew exactly where this guy came from. We wouldn't know His origins. Now, where that idea came from, we don't know because it's certainly not consistent with Scripture. It's not consistent with the Old Testament revelation. It was an erroneous belief. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, clearly identifies... Bethlehem as the city of birth for the Messiah. And also in in Matthew chapter two, verse twenty three, where there where Joseph and Mary where they returned to Nazareth, and there it says that it might be fulfilled in Matthew chapter two, verse twenty three, that which was spoken to through the prophets that he might be called a Nazarene. It was revealed in the old testament where the Christ, where the Messiah was going to be coming from. So here what you have is a presupposition that they've thrust upon the Messiah that's based on error. The danger. The danger of not knowing the scriptures. So they would their their tendency is to reject Christ because, well we know where this guy's from. Messiah comes not supposed to know where this guy's from. So he can't be the the Messiah in their thinking. Jesus clearly states here that His presence was not merely human. It was not His own presumption. It was not self-initiated. It was not a self-advancing agenda. Verse 29, He sent me. God the Father sent me. Also, John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. God the Father is the one who has sent. The repeated theme throughout Jesus' ministry and often recorded in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, over 30 times, I at 35, but I may have messed up there, but over 30 times, Jesus makes reference to the fact that He is one who was sent. Get your concordance. Look up the word sent. You'll find it 30 to 35 times. All in reference to God the Father sending Jesus Christ the Son. It's an emphasis of Jesus' teaching. John chapter 16, verse 28. We're not going to look at all those, by the way. Glad to hear that, aren't you? John chapter 16 verse 28, "I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father." I'm not going to look at all these. if you want to jot these down real quick, John chapter 5 verse 24. John 5:24. same chapter, verses 36 and 37. John chapter 5, verse 24. John chapter 5, verses 36 and 37. John chapter 20, verse 21. Other Gospels. Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. Matthew 10, 40. Luke chapter 9, verse 48. All of those referencing that Jesus is one who was sent. Now we need to understand this. That when Jesus there speaks of being sent from the Father, this is more than a claim to merely having an existence with God. It's not as though they're in the, in the portals of heaven and God the Father and God the Son are sitting there and God the Father says, God the Son, why don't you go? It's more than a distinction of, of one who is with heaven. He is in fact claiming divinity when He says, I come forth from the Father. It's not saying that, that God has sent me and I am completely isolated and separate from the Father. He is saying, I am one with the Father. Which is exactly what He says in John chapter 10. I and the Father are one. So that Jesus says even to His disciples in John chapter 14, 9-11, You who have seen the Father, who have seen me, have seen the Father. He is claiming equality with God the Father. He is in fact divine. So in saying he was sent by God the Father is not, it is not negating his deity. In fact, it is emphasizing it. He proceeds forth from the Father. So he's one who is sent. Let's also look at John chapter six, verse thirty eight. John chapter six, verse thirty eight. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do My own will. Another purpose statement here. Not to do My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. He is not here on His own initiative. He is not here to do as He wills. He is not self-seeking. It is not self-gratification. It is God's will be done done. He is sent with a purpose and He is committed to the doing of that purpose. So much so that in John chapter 4 verse 34, the disciples come back to Jesus with some food and they've gone and while they've been out, He's been visiting with this woman at the well. And they've got food and they said, Lord, eat something. He says, this is my food. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. John chapter 4 Verse 34, that's my will, to do the will of Him who sent me. John chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing of my own initiative as I hear I judge, my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So Jesus... He finds ultimate satisfaction of purpose and also satisfaction of soul in this. God's will be done. It's not his agenda. It is the will of, the, of that which is God the Father. He says, oh, wait a minute, in God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, in his will too? Yes, it is. But, it, but in the subordination, the willful subordination within the Trinity, not inferiority, the willful subordination of the Son to the Father is the will of the Father. That the son submitted himself to. So Jesus is divine. And is on a divinely initiated mission. So our message is this. That God has sent his son. That's what he said. I've been sent. He sent me. That God has sent his son into the world on a mission. He's not here. Jesus didn't come on a tourist visa. visa. He didn't come just to see what was going on. He didn't come to see just what it would be like to live here among men. He came with a purpose designed by God. A purpose for the good of, for the good of men at the heart of it. For our sake. So it's revelatory to us that God is not indifferent. God is not unmoved by our condition of lostness, is He? that God sent His Son to grant eternal life to His people. And God's intent is seen in the next truth regarding His coming. Not only was He sent fulfilling a divine commission, He was also seeking. He was also seeking, expressing a divine compassion. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Having preached through Luke, well, I got all these. <laughs> Wish we've been here, haven't we? Luke chapter four, verse forty-three. Back up to forty-two. The day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him, and they came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them, but he said to them, "I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also." purpose statement. For I was sent for this purpose. What's he saying here? What's the purpose? The purpose is, he states here, to preach the kingdom of God. He was sent here with a task of proclamation to declare God's righteous rule. That's a kingdom a kingdom is where one rules the kingdom of god is where god's rules. so to declare to preach the kingdom of god is to declare god's righteous rule being restored in the hearts of men those who have been alienated those who have renounced god's rule by their sin that rule is being restored also that god's kingdom God's kingdom coming in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. To preach the kingdom of God is to preach the message of the person and the work of Christ. And if God's kingdom coming in Christ and eventually being established over all of creation. We've begun to see that. When Christ returns, we shall see it in its fullness. He came seeking. How was he seeking? He came seeking by preaching the kingdom of God. Preaching the rule of God. Preaching God's kingdom through Christ. He came pursuing people. And then we can see three more purpose statements of Jesus and see the condition, the descriptive condition of mankind. The first one is in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. This is, of course, in the story of Zacchaeus, the man of small stature is has gone and he's climbed a tree and to wait for Jesus passing by because he couldn't see him because of the pressing crowd. Jesus comes by in verse five. He looked up. He said, "Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must to stay at your house." Verse six, and he did it. Seven. When they saw it, they began to grumble, saying, "He's gone to the guest of a man who's a sinner." And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, "Lord." Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Then verse 10, here's the purpose statement. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came seeking. We're going to focus on that part of this verse at this point. He came to seek what? He came to seek, as he describes it, that which has been and that which still is lost. That's his descriptive, his description of the human race that mankind is lost. And here the image is that of a shepherd going out and seeking his wandering and his lost and his perishing and his helpless sheep. Because if you are a sheep and you are lost by yourself, you are perishing. It's just a matter of time. You're not going to survive out there by yourself. Sheep need the protection of their shepherd. And so the picture here is those who are lost and they are perishing. Those who are outside of God's kingdom. And when did we leave God's fold? We left it in the sin of Adam. By one man's sin. We chose to not be in God's fold, and God comes seeking the lost, those sheep that are perishing, and He's bringing them back in. That's the descriptive word that He gives here that that we are those who are lost. Second, when He gives in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and following. Let's back up for context. Levi, that's Matthew. Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It's not those who are well and need a physician, but those who are sick. Then verse 32, purpose statement. I have not come to call the righteous. This is why I have come. I've come to call sinners to repentance. So what is Jesus' second description of, of mankind? Sinners. Come to call sinners. I didn't come to call those who are righteous. And we understand in, in the context here, he's using the irony here. The fact of the matter is there are none righteous. But the difference in one group is From the other group is there's one group who's blind to their to their lostness, to their sin, and there's another group that's willing to admit it. He says, I've come for those who see their need, who recognize that they are sinners. So the sick, the sinners are the sick of verse thirty one. Those who see the sickness of their own sin, and they desire help. Jesus says, I have come to call sinners. I have come to call sinners what? Call them to repentance. Call them to renounce. To turn from their rebellion against God's rule. That's what He's called them to. So He's come seeking the lost. He's come calling sinners. And then we see the third description He gives in John chapter 12. John chapter 12 beginning in verse 44, going to verse 46. Jesus cried out and He said, He who believes in Me does not believe in Me, but in Him who sent Me. He who sees Me sees the One who sent Me. I have come as light into the world. Purpose statement. So that everyone who believes in Me will not remain in darkness. So he's described the state of man as Luke nineteen ten as the lost. He's described as in Luke chapter five, thirty-one, as sinners. Here in John chapter twelve, he describes the state of man as those who are in darkness. In darkness. And he says, I have come as light to reveal the contrast of the darkness that men's lives are in. And he says that the benefit of this light, in verse 46, the benefit of of this light coming into the world is to everyone who believes in Me. In other words, it's not a benefit that's reaped by His presence to everyone who's there, to everyone who sees Him. He's not light to everyone who sees. Some saw Jesus and still walked in darkness. But he says this benefit applies to those who believe, those who embrace the person and the work of Jesus Christ as the God-man paying the penalty for their sins committed against Him. That's what it means to believe, to embrace Him, to embrace Him for who He is, to embrace what He has done as being provisional for me to, to remedy my sin problem. And John chapter 8, verse 12 gives a little bit of clarification of that. Using that same imagery of light. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light. I am the light of the world. He who what? And doesn't use the word believes here, does it? He? What does he say? He who follows me. He follows me. So over in in twelve 46, he who believes. What does it mean to believe? It does mean to embrace the first work of Christ. Another dimension is the one who follows Christ. In other words, he yields himself to the lordship and to the rule of Jesus Christ in his life as God. So to believe and to follow are synonymous. If you believe in Christ, you follow in Christ. If you follow in Christ, you believe in Christ. If you do not believe in Christ, you're not following Christ. If you're not following Christ, you do not believe in Christ. He is come as light to those who are in darkness. That's our state. We are lost. We are sinners. We are in darkness. And so Jesus came expressing God's compassion for men who are lost, for men who are sinful, for men who are in darkness. And he came preaching the message of God's kingdom. That's the message that brings the lost, that brings the sinners, and that brings the darkness unto Him. Preaching His reign. Seeking the lost. Calling sinners to repentance. Bringing men in darkness to light. So we confidently declare that message, do we not? That message of compassion. The message of God's compassion for men, for the lost, for the sinful, for those who are in darkness. After all, that's where we were. I mean, this is us, folks. Lost sinners in darkness. That's us. And what brought us out? The compassion of God, the mercy of God revealed to us. And so we can speak confidently of that message of God who is one who is seeking the lost, seeking the sinful, seeking those who are in darkness. And we proclaim that message of truth. And it is a true message. Folks, we need to proclaim this message. Men are lost. Men are perishing. Men are sinners. Men are in violation of God's moral law. It's an, your life is an offense against God. And you're walking in darkness. That's the message To proclaim so that men might know their condition, that men might see themselves as God sees them. I mean, these are Jesus' words. Jesus is the one that says, I've come to seek the lost. Jesus is the one who says, I've come for sinners, come to call sinners. Jesus is the one who says to those who are in darkness. That's His terminology. That's how He sees us. So calling men to see themselves as God sees them and to come to Him in repentance. It's God's delight in showing His mercy to the undeserving who will admit it. And we understand likewise it is God's grace that we That we recognize it and that we admit it. But it is God's delight in showing it. Jesus came seeking, seeking those who would not, those who were not seeking him. How successful is he in this pursuit? I mean, after all, can we not all identify with the reality that, that we have sought for things that we never found? I live like that around my house. I've still got things I can't find. I've been looking for a long time. I finally, and sad to say, I finally. I've been sometimes I pray first. Sometimes I finally just pray and say, "Lord, if you want me to find it, I got other things to do." And some of those things we have found, but there's still some things that are they're in the in the abyss of the house somewhere. We all know that you can't find some things. How successful was Jesus? He came seeking. We also know that he came as one who was saving, came to seek and to save those which were lost. He came saving, securing a divine conquest. That was the second part, the follow-up to his seeking, wasn't it? Came to seek and to save that which was lost. Look at John chapter twelve, verse forty-seven. John twelve forty-seven. anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not. Here's a purpose statement. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Folks, that's his purpose. I came to bring salvation. To accomplish salvation. To actually <clears throat> bring about salvation, not judgment. <clears throat> Excuse me. John chapter 3 verse 17 says a very similar statement. 316, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Folks, here, here was the purpose. God's purpose in sending Jesus Christ was not judgment, it was salvation. Judgment was pending. Judgment was already there. For all men. If He doesn't come. So He sent His Son to bring about salvation. To bring about salvation for some has to do that. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 verse 28. I'm sorry, it's not Matthew 10, it's Matthew 20. i changed it in my other notes, didn't get it done in this copy. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So how is it then that Jesus secures salvation? He says... This salvation is secured by his coming and his laying down of his life or a ransom. It's a purchase price that is that is paid to set one free. He did not come for comfort. He did not come to have people serving his, his interest. He did not come to serve. I'm sorry, he did not come to be served, but came to serve, to lay down his life as a ransom. Didn't come demanding that which was suitable and appropriate for one such as he is. I mean, what's appropriate when God comes in the flesh? It's appropriate that all would come and serve him in some capacity. And Jesus didn't come demanding that. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve, to meet the needs of others. <clears throat> and that his death was a divine plan. John 10, 18. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. He lays his life down. No one takes it from him. And that death, laying down of his life as a ransom for many, was necessary. It was a necessary part of God's plan in order to bring pardon for those who were guilty. So Jesus came not only seeking, but He came saving. And He came saving by laying down His life as a ransom, as the purchase price. As a price paid in order to set us free from our bondage to sin. But what of all that Jesus does not save? Jesus came seeking... Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, we could say, for well, all of mankind is lost. What about all of those whom Jesus does not save? I mean, after all, it, Jesus Himself said that there are very few that enter into that narrow gate. Very few that find the way to life. It seems to me that if Jesus' purpose was to come to seek and to save the lost, He has largely failed in that. That's what some would say. He came to save and he can't save because, look, most of humanity is unsaved. So, is Jesus, has he failed? We've got to look at a couple more purpose statements to answer that. One's in Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> Verse thirty-four. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. Now that's a pretty dominant theme this time of year, isn't it? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and rightfully so. There is an aspect in which peace comes. Said, so "Don't think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword, speaking thereof." division. Then look in Luke chapter 12, a related text, Luke chapter 12. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no. Rather, division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother in law against daughter in law, and daughter in law against mother in law. What's he saying here? See this the person in the work of Jesus Christ is the great divide among men. If you're going to divide humanity, do it this way. Those who have believed and followed Christ have embraced Him and those who reject Him. That's it. And Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. In other words, I came to introduce to you the fact that there's a great divide going to take place and there are going to be those within families there going to be those among within societies there going to be those within various groups they're going to be divided because of their stance in regard to who i am and what i've done One household divided. Three against two. Two against three. Father against son. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It's division. Because there are always going to be those who respond to the gospel message by saying, yes, I see this. And there are going to be those who reject the message. And Jesus knew that. And then, looking again, To another purpose statement, John chapter 9, verse 39. We'll tie all this together here in just a minute. John chapter 9, verse 39, and Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world. So those who do not see may see, those who see may become blind. The first part of that verse where he says, For judgment I came into this world. That sounds to be it seems to be completely contradictory to what he said in John chapter twelve, verse forty seven. Did not come to judge the world, but to save. And here he says, For judgment I came into this world. How do we understand this? I think we've got to understand it this way. That the positive intent and design of Jesus Christ coming was salvation. That's why He came, to bring salvation to men, to bring salvation to mankind. But a necessary negative result or a consequence is judgment upon those who reject the message of salvation. That's the only option you've got. And so by His coming, He comes and He brings salvation to some, but He brings judgment to others because of the depravity of their own heart is revealed in the rejection of Jesus Christ, thereby rejecting God Himself. So the positive design was salvation of some, but the consequence, the result was damnation and judgment to others. He knew that. One more purpose statement. John chapter 18, verse 37. Here Jesus is on trial speaking to Pilate. John chapter 18, verse 37. Pilate said to Him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king? For this I have been born. Purpose statement. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Here's why I've come. Here's why I was born. To testify to the truth. The truth about man. The truth about God. The truth about salvation. And he did all those things by his words, but also by his life and by his deeds. And the reality is there are many who reject truth. He came to testify to that truth, many heard that truth, and they walked away from it. They want nothing to do it. So to those who believe Jesus coming with salvation, to those who reject those who refuse to believe, their depravity their heart is revealed by their continued rebellion against Christ, continued rebellion against God, their contempt to remain so, therefore they are judged by his coming. So did Jesus succeed or fail? Well, if you believe the angelic proclamation, his name should be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. He succeeded. He shall save. He will save. Listen. The conclusion of Scripture is this Jesus Christ comes and saves every single solitary person for whom He intended to come and to save. He saves His people, He saves His chosen. He saves His elect. Not because there's any virtue in one group, of no group, but that God in His sovereign plan, in His sovereign purposes, chose to save some. Not all. God's plan was never, never universalism. God's plan was never to save every single solitary person on the face of the earth. If it were, Jesus Christ did fail. But Jesus came for his people. For those whom he determined would be with him forever. And he saves them. You're saved today because of God's sovereign grace. So I don't like the idea of sovereign grace. <laughs> Let God be God. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will harden him. I will harden. I will have compassion on him. I will have compassion. I am God to do as I choose. Don't question me. And that was Paul's rebuke there in Romans chapter 9. Who are you, old man? To speak back to God. Who do you think you are? To speak back to God against God's sovereign purposes. The marvel is, folks, that He chose to save anybody. There's the wonder of grace that anybody is saved. And if God is free to save, He's free to save whom He wills. We're always asking the wrong questions, aren't we? Why does God send these people to hell? God's let God let people go to hell because he leaves them to themselves. But in his mercy and his grace to show his own glory, he chooses to smash a handful out. There's the one why here's the question why in the world would God do that? Why didn't he just let us all go? Why doesn't he? Because he's gracious. And it's for his glory. I admit there's there's struggle and there's mystery in that. But I'm not going to abandon the biblical truth because I don't find it necessarily convenient or compatible with my own taste. I mean, don't we all have the notion that all of us would be much more merciful than God is? We'd save more, maybe most, or not all. Be careful. Be very, very careful. His ways are not our ways. As high as the is above the earth, so high are His ways, His thoughts, above our ways and our thoughts. Somewhere along the line, we wrestle with these issues and we fall on our face for God and say, Lord, You be God. Your ways are right and they are good and they are perfect and I'm not going to argue with You. You are God. So He came saving. It was a divine conquest. Listen, folks. Jesus won. Every one for whom He came and He shed His blood, therein in. They come somewhere in time. They come to Christ. He saves them. Praise be to God. And may we rejoice in that He was sent, fulfilling that divine commission, not of His own initiative. He was seeking, expressing God's divine compassion for the lost, for sinners, for those in darkness. And He came saving. By His coming, He secured it. He secured that God wins. God gets His own for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Son. We thank You for sending Him. That He clarifies to us why He came. That the reason, not only for this season, but the reason that we celebrate His coming each day is because His coming means salvation. And Lord, may we be faithful in proclaiming and delighting in that message. With all the, the fur around us to be true to the message of the Word of God, this is what Christ's coming means. This is why He came. And Lord, that you'd be pleased even to bring men and women into yourself. And Lord, to be pleased to deepen within our hearts our affections for you.